Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. I'm Mike Gomer Gormley, and I'm here to walk you through the essentials of what it means to follow Christ as a Catholic disciple. Let's begin. Last week, we talked about Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well to give you the highlights. It is a story of Christ, the bridegroom. He progressively reveals to this woman, his divinity, his mission, and his love for her as an individual. She was in fact, an outcast woman of an outcast people and her history is transformed in the hands of Christ from a source of her shame and her people's shame to the very topic of her testimony. Come see a man who told me all that I've ever done. This transformation leads to evangelization and the whole town converts. It's an incredible story. And so what we want to do today is progress from this example of a Christian disciple, of someone who has their lives changed by Jesus. It's one of the few stories that we get a nice, like a whole chapter almost dedicated to just her conversion, to now looking at one of those essential elements of discipleship. And I'm going to do it in an annoyingly roundabout way. So this is what we want to do. Okay. So we've been doing this character study of Jesus Christ in the gospels, drawing on writers like the venerable Fulton J. Sheen, Frank Sheed, the catechism, saints, all that good stuff. And in this 35 ish minute show, we can only do so much, but Uh, What we want to do by taking topic by topic, we get to see the words and deeds of Jesus and the context that he offers in order to understand more clearly what it means to follow Christ. First, we see how Jesus modeled this for his disciples. We see this through his, the eyes and ears of his enemies, as well as his disciples. Second, we see the explicit teachings that he modeled on these various topics in order to understand these teachings within the wider context of the gospel offers us. And third, by studying his life, the context, the example, we apply it to ourselves. We want to be disciples of Jesus, and we actually want to make disciples of Jesus. So what we're going to do is look at one of the most essential and difficult elements of Christian discipleship. It's a difficult one, and there's a lot of ways that we can introduce this theme, but I'm going to take an unusual approach. I think it's weird, but it has resonated with me in my prayer, especially after, during and after Holy Week. And so, sure, this might be annoyingly roundabout way, but I think, I think it'll be effective. So let's begin. Our discipleship of Christ has a starting point and also an end point that many of us really, really, really wish just simply were not true, and we wish it weren't so. But before we get into what that thing is, we're going to open our Bibles to John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, Jesus is off on this pretty unusual monologue that is set in motion by something really subtle. And in in fact, it's so subtle, we might be totally confused by why he reacts the way that he reacts. As with any good character study, we need to keep in mind the wider context of John chapter 12. So we're in John chapter 12. So what happens in the wider context? Well, John chapters one through 11, I don't know if you know this, but John gives us three Passovers. Jesus crucified at the third Passover. 
And John chapter one with the baptism and the wedding feast of Cana takes place around the first Passover. And in the middle, John six is the second. So you got the first, the second and the third Passover. So that's how you kind of mark Jesus's public ministry. Chapters one through 11 cover basically two and a half years of his life in public ministry. So that's 11 chapters. Chapter 12 to 19 is Holy Week. Right, so you got three, two and a half years, almost three years, and then you have Holy Week, one week that's 12 to 19. And then chapters 20 and 21 is the resurrection accounts. It's Easter season. So you have this huge disparity, uh, or, or rather this profound focus in John's gospel. Chapters 1 through 11, public ministry, and basically 12 to 21 is Holy Week and Easter. This is an intense moment of focus. So we need to understand that John chapter 12 is like a hinge point for the passion narrative, for the story of the Paschal mystery. Chapter 12 has three major plot points that we want to cover. Number one is in chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus. So in chapter 12, Jesus is hanging out in the home with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And this is where we have the famous story of Mary anointing Jesus's feet with costly ointment. And Judas says, well, that should have been sold and it's money given to the poor. And John tells us Judas didn't care about the poor. He used to keep the money box and would steal from it. So you're like, ah, oh, Judas has a love of money. Judas is greedy and greed, as we looked at about three episodes ago, is the number one vice that Jesus, both physically and verbally, attacks the most. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that subtle? Okay. Crazier still, we find out next after the story of the anointing of the feet that the chief priests of Jerusalem are so mad that so many people are believing in Jesus because of the resurrection of Lazarus, seeing him walking around, now they come up with a plot to kill Lazarus. How insane is that? They're so enraged, they're willing to kill anyone. And I think you can understand why that's appropriate to set up Holy Week. And the last line that the chief priests say is, see the whole world comes to him. Finally, Right before we get into the, the part that I want to talk about, we have Palm Sunday. We have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem of the Messiah, the son of David, riding on the colt of an ass, Jesus Christ, coming into town on top of the palm branches. And this is the moment that kind of sets off the Paschal mystery. And so chapters 1 through 11, two and a half years, chapter 12 to 19 gives us Holy Week and 20 and 21 gives us Easter. And it's actually funny. John throws in this little historical note where he says his disciples did not understand this at first, meaning Palm Sunday. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that this had been written of him and what had been done to him. So now comes the subtle moment. So if you're in your Bible, if you're listening to me, crack open scripture, pull it up on your phone. John chapter 12, verses 20 and following. So I'm going to read it to you now. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now, it doesn't say they were Greek converts to Judaism. The whole festival was a pretty attractive thing, even for tourists. So there were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So now the word of Jesus, that this prophet, this fascinating human being who just set off this huge, riotous rejoicing when he entered Jerusalem, 
they now get the report. The gospel is coming to the Greeks and said to him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew went with Philip and they told Jesus. I think that's kind of funny. Game of telephone. And note Jesus's response. And Jesus answered them, verses 23 to 25. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. And now we get into verses 27 and 29. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, for this purpose, I have come to this world. Father, glorify thy name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Now in verse 20 to 29, we have this fascinating thing. And I want to point out three things first before we actually get into the topic of today. I told you it was going to be annoyingly roundabout. First thing, the Greeks are here. They are the truest outsider, more so than even the Samaritan people, more so than even the uneducated poor of the land that the Pharisees despised. And these Greeks want to see Jesus. The chosen people were not the rest of humanity. There are two categories, the chosen people and the goyim, right? The outsiders, the goy, the Gentiles. And Jesus would reconcile the two into one new people. That's exactly what St. Paul says in his body of flesh. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility that separated Jew from Greek and in his body made the two one. The second thing that we need to note in these nine verses, we're talking about discipleship here. And verse 26 highlights the intensity and the singularity of focus for our discipleship. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Okay, so now this is an intense focus on Christian discipleship. Third thing, in earlier episodes, we talked about how a Christian becomes a mature disciple when he or she puts the kingdom first ahead of the world, worldly concerns, cares, desires, even needs. Heaven gives earth its significance and meaning. His enemies are those who love money, love the esteem of others, right? He says that the sower goes out to sow in the field, falls on the path, falls on rocky soil. He said, then it falls on soil and the soil is actually good. It puts down good roots. It's able to grow. But then it says it's among bramble and the thorns and bramble choke it out. And he says, these thorns are actually the concerns and cares of the world and the delights of the world and love of money. So Jesus saying like the worldly stuff, the bright and shiny things, the esteem of others, our value in the world, this is what can keep us from heaven. But a mature disciple is one who puts first the kingdom of heaven. That's why Jesus says in John 12, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Okay, so now we've come to the point. What is the thing that we all hate? Where does it start? Where does it end? Why is this such a central theme? And why do we hate it so much? And that is the role of suffering in discipleship. I mean, yes, I've talked about this before, but we all hate this. We all hate that suffering. We, in our minds, we're like, hate his life in this world. We automatically start editing all of this stuff in our minds and come up with caveats and all these things. But Jesus says it, right? He says, the grain of wheat must fall into the ground into the earth 
and it must die in order to bear fruit. Jesus is laying out the conditions of discipleship because he's laying it out in the terms that he himself is willing to pay for our salvation. I mean, think about this. The chief priest says the world has gone after him when they see the crowds calling out their hosannas. But also the Greeks come to him. And when the Greeks arrive, he says, now is the hour of my glorification. Again, this character study of ours that we're trying to do here should teach us something specific and new, causing us to slow down and observe more carefully what's happening. And so in verse 27, Jesus says, I, I love this. So he, he brings up the hour and then he says, now is my soul troubled. So you can still hear the hosannas in the background, but Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. Think about this. Our Lord's heart is troubled. It's anxious. It is fearful. He does not want to die. The moment that has begun now will continue and, and really be on display narratively in the agony in the garden. The humanity of Jesus Christ recoils at the thought of his death, especially the horrible, long and torturous death and humiliations that comes only after all of his friends abandon him. Jesus would enter the garden of Gethsemane in just a few chapters and three times he will beg the father, let this cup pass. But he always ends with the caveat, that's our salvation, but not my will, but thine be done. So this is one of the things that we learned from the very beginning from Frank Sheed. Do not let the divinity of Christ overshadow his humanity or make his humanity disappear. Okay, we need to see that Jesus, like so often I think we understand the cross and the crucifixion as necessary for our salvation. So we pretend that Jesus loved it, like he was skipping to the cross. Ooh, can't wait to die. No, Jesus sees the signs of his triumphal entry. He sees the signs of the Greeks coming to him. And that's it. He knows the crucifixion is around the corner. The cross has cast its shadow. And yet the difference between Adam and Christ, between you and me, and Christ, is the next sentence. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. So Jesus is saying he's scared. He doesn't want this in a certain sense in terms of his humanity is recoiling at the thought of suffering and pain and death. But then he says, but what shall I say? What, what, what do you want me to say? Save me from this hour? No, it is for this purpose that I have come to this hour. The book of Hebrews puts it this way, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So that again, he's the pioneer. He's the model who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. So the book of Hebrews says that he endured the cross for the sake of the joy that lay before him. The book of Hebrews says that he despised the shame of the cross. Oftentimes we have this lily white Jesus without a bruise on him, kind of like a smirk or smile on his face hanging up there on the cross. But the cross was a brutal form of humiliation and torture. And any right thinking human being would be terrified of this. The agony in the garden was real agony because his human nature revolted at the thought of suffering and death, of shame and humiliation of the cross that awaited him. His nerve endings recoiled, but not his nerve. He knew why he was here. 
He knows that it's for this agony, this hour, that his salvation that he purchases will become ours, and thus his joy will be complete. As Isaiah the prophet said over 500 years earlier, by his stripes, we are healed. So the condition of our salvation is his suffering. But Jesus then applies this to us. Remember what he says about servants in John 12, 26. If anyone serve me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant shall be also. He is going to Calvary with his cross. We too must follow him. We too must be with him on the cross. Now, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, the venerable Fulton J. Sheen, whom I love, had a wonderful television show called Life is Worth Living, and he had a topic on suffering. I actually just watched it the other day on YouTube. It is so incredible. And he starts off by saying, in America today, we have great material prosperity and greater inner discontent. What he means by that is we're living a false philosophy of life. We keep telling ourselves that the infinite desire of the human heart can be fulfilled, appeased by these finite, shifting, fading, weak things, created things when we're made for the creator. And that is insanity. Modernity is afraid of pain and suffering. We don't know what to do with it when it befalls us, except to run from it. We run from all forms of pain and suffering. We don't want to listen to the wisdom of the ancients, whether they're Greeks or much less so of sacred scripture, in order to understand what pain and suffering can actually be. It can be a refiner's fire to the virtues of our heart, to the virtues of our soul, and to our body, the disciplining of our body. It can render us men and women instead of children. It can make us pure and unalloyed souls. There are basically two attitudes that we can have towards pain, and this is what Fulton Sheen points out. We can have rebellion or we can have resignation. One sees pain and suffering and hates it and recoils and then runs from it. The other sees it and accepts it, is resigned to it. Now, Fulton Sheen points out, and I think this is absolutely brilliant, that the rebellion and the resignation are so perfectly figured by the two thieves crucified on either side of Christ. One cries out to be saved from the cross. The other rebukes him and then cries out not to have his sufferings removed, but to be welcomed into the kingdom when his life is extinguished. And Fulton Sheen said, and we, we all, this is like, so even my kids know this. And I love it when my son said this to me, he said, the thief died a thief because he stole heaven. I love that. Fulton Sheen said he lived, he died as he lived his life, a thief for on that day, he stole heaven. Suffering shows us the futility of creation and living for created things that will fail us. As C.S. Lewis put it so beautifully in his wonderful book, The Problem of Pain, until the evil man finds evil unmistakably present in his existence in the form of pain, he is enclosed in illusion. Once pain has roused him, he knows that he is, in some way or other, up against the real universe. He either rebels with the possibility of a clearer issue and a deeper penance at some later stage, or else makes some attempting at an adjustment, which, if pursued, will lead him to religion. So even Lewis talks about the rebellion or the resignation. If he rebels, even this presence of pain and suffering might lead him later to return to, uh, to, to break out of his own self-sufficiency. But if he embraces it, then maybe, maybe, just maybe, 
his insufficiency will lead him to the God who loves him. Material blessings that we have seen in the Bible, in the life of Israel, can be dangerous. In the life of Judas, can be dangerous. In the life of so many people, money and other forms of wealth, they're not evil in themselves. But in a fallen world, these things can become objects of our disordered love and become ends in themselves. The love of money and material possessions can cloud our judgment and make it nearly impossible to see what? To see time in the greater context of eternity. They take our attention off of eternity and put it back on ourselves, but always with a distorted, selfish vision. Again, C.S. Lewis, the masterful Lewis, puts it this way. And you probably heard this quote before. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Okay, so now let's look at suffering in terms of resignation and understand why, as a Christian, it's so important. So first, I would say that there are three levels of resignation to suffering. So the pre-thing is like, okay, before we get to level one, you have to realize like most of us are in rebellion, okay? So these are those who have resigned themselves to suffering. So these are the three good levels. And I think that if you look at this, each level builds on one another. You don't need to ignore or denigrate the previous level in order to embrace the next level. So level one is what I call the philosophical level. Suffering is everywhere in this life. Your wealth and your health will only delay its ability to overwhelm you, but suffering and pain will still catch you all the more unaware. No amount of blustering, no deal with the devil, nothing can stop suffering from befalling you. You will suffer. The question the philosophers ask is not what will it do to you, but rather what will you do with it? Level two is what I call the Christological or theological. We know that Jesus Christ put suffering at the center of his mission on the earth, right? What shall I say to the father? (laughs) Let this hour pass. No, it's for this very purpose. I came into the world. He did not have to embrace the cross, but he chose to at the foundation stone of the world. The cornerstone of all of Western civilization is not the conqueror is not the emperor is not the sword, the spear or the arrow, but the cross. And that is what upholds our entire Western civilization. It's the cross. So then one philosophical, two Christological, three, what I call the sanctifying vision. Since suffering is unavoidable and since our blessed Lord chose the cross and since we want to be disciples of Jesus Christ, then we embrace suffering. Understanding that in Christ, all suffering, any suffering can actually now become redemptive, not just suffering for your faith, but sickness, illness, all suffering because Christ united all suffering to himself. When he took on a human nature, he in a certain way united himself to every human and also in suffering, both internal, emotional, mental anguish, as well as external physical pains. Christ united himself to all sufferings. So the philosopher knew that sufferings come to every man, but they knew not Christ and his redemption. So they thought that all we can glean from suffering was, okay, suffer well. They lived in this level one. The Stoics, for instance, taught indifference in the face of suffering. Don't prefer suffering to pleasure. Be indifferent to both because pleasure can lead you down a dark path. So can suffering. So just resign yourself. Socrates, who was not a Stoic, Socrates said, that the good actually never suffer evil. The question was, why do bad things happen to good people? Socrates says it doesn't because every evil 
is actually an opportunity for us to be virtuous in response. The lesson the Jews have learned time and time again is this lesson of suffering. As one Yiddish proverb says, he who has not suffered, what could he possibly know? There is true knowledge that only comes by way of patient suffering, of endurance. Now, the theologians that study the Gospels, that study Christ, right, they know that Christ suffered for them. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. They know the bloody sweat, the abandonment of friends, the beatings, the scourging at the pillar, the crowning of thorns, the carrying of the cross, the crucifixion. They know the seven last words of Christ crucified, and they claim their salvation because of his divine incarnate crucified love. They see the cross as the biography of their own sins, but also see in it the depths of God's love for them. Simply put, they know that the level two is real, and they stake their salvation on his sufferings. But the saints surpass the philosophers and the theologians in that, in the Holy Spirit, they unite level one and level two together to form level three. Level three Christians are those who follow in the footsteps of St. Paul in Romans 12, who call upon us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. In fact, making of our lives a living sacrifice, which involves suffering, is precisely how we break the world's grasp on us. Do not be conformed to this world, St. Paul would go on to say, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and perfect. Suffering is a fact in the fallen world. It is a world of necessary consequences in which free will exists and which creation itself, as St. Paul says in Romans 8, is subject to futility. You can't escape it. But also pain and suffering, when you look at it from the Christian perspective, are mysteries that we will never fully comprehend this side of eternity. We can see how the greatest of souls are those who suffer well and bravely. But we will never be able to answer, come on, God, why couldn't you have chosen a different way to make us mature disciples? Why couldn't you have chosen something other than the crucible of pain and the refiner's fire of persecution in order to make us more noble creatures? The answer is, I, I don't know. In fact, it's this very question of suffering and evil why so many have turned from God and doubt his existence. How could a loving God allow such evil? All religions and philosophies of the whole world have their own ways of facing the problem of pain. But Christianity provides the unique solution in the form of God's own willingness to suffer with us and to suffer for us. And in so doing, he turns it redemptive and opens up eternal life to us. As Fulton Sheen would tell us, the grapes of the vine will never become wine unless they are first crushed. So also we will never become what we are meant to be unless we are first crushed by suffering. The difference is that Christ makes wine And then he takes that wine, which you can say maybe that level one is the philosophers making wine out of the crushed grapes of their lives, of the suffering in their lives. But the difference that he makes is he can take that wine into his hands and he can speak his words over that wine that he alone can give men to speak in his footsteps. And that wine transformed by the overshadowing of his Holy Spirit remains wine no more, but his very blood. So too can our sufferings, our sense of being crushed by the wrongs of this world. It can actually be harnessed by the Lord, be given over to our Lord, be united intimately to our Lord in his passion and his death. And that pain becomes a doorway to intimacy with the Savior, the Savior crucified as his humanity becomes the gateway to heaven. 
as his humanity unites Jew and Gentile, as the gospel of his death and resurrection becomes the very thing that makes Jew and Greek no more, but all one in Christ Jesus. This is why the Eucharist is more than a nice meal with friends, but a holy sacrifice. It becomes the source and summit of the Christian life. As St. Paul says, live your lives, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So if we're to become disciples of Jesus Christ, then the road that we must walk ends at Calvary. Jesus said, this is the condition of discipleship. If anyone would be my disciple, let him first deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow after me. Contrary to the philosophers, Jesus knows that we humans are in need of more than just a little self-help, a little therapy here and there, a little social adjustment, and then we'd be fine. No, we are rebels. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. We are not merely imperfect creatures who must be improved. That's kind of the modern understanding. Oh, just a little therapy here and there and we're fine. We are, as Newman said, rebels who must lay down our arms. The first answer then to the question of why our cure should be painful is that to render back the will, which we have so long to claim for our own, is in itself, wherever and however it's done, a grievous pain. Hence the necessity to die daily. However often we think we have broken the rebellious self, we shall find it still alive. And this is why discipleship, if anyone would be my disciple, he must first deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. This is why we have to do this, because the rebel within us refuses to yield our will to Christ. Now, here are five lessons that suffering actually teaches us. Number one, maturity. So children live from pleasure to pleasure to pleasure. That's what babies do. That's what toddlers do. That's what children do. But men and women must understand that there is no great task, no great work, no great accomplishment that can actually happen except through the struggle borne out through pain. Children live for pleasure. And there's a lot of children today walking around in grown-up bodies. Suffering also teaches us humility. As suffering forces us to confront our weaknesses, our limitations, our finitude as creatures. We realize our own personal insufficiency in the face of emotional pain, social rejection, physical illness. We are not sufficient unto ourselves. Suffering also teaches us compassion. The more we become, as uh, Fulton Sheen said, the more attuned we become to our own sufferings, the more we attuned we become to the sufferings of others. We enter into their pains. We share their pain and learn to ease the pain of others by voluntarily suffering with them. Or we take on their sufferings. We bear their burdens alongside them. As St. Paul commands us to do in Galatians chapter 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So it teaches us maturity, humility compassion. It also teaches us our dependency on grace. For when we find ourselves at the end of our own sufficiency, all we can do is unite our sufferings more closely to Christ crucified. But when we do that, we understand the depths of God's love more and more and his redemptive mission, his pursuit of us in Christ. And we realize how much we really do need grace. Finally, suffering teaches us true theology. It teaches us the very inner life of the blessed Trinity is revealed as love and love is more than niceness. It's even more than kindness. It is a consuming fire. This love is as C.S. Lewis wrote a beautiful poem about this. Love is as hard as nails that pierced through the median nerve of one who loved us. 
Now, we're going to take a brief pause, and when we come back, we're going to wrap this up with an understanding of how embracing suffering in Christian discipleship makes us untouchable. But first, a word from Ascension Press. Hi, my name is Father Mike Schmitz. I am the host of the Catechism in a Year podcast. If you've been following along with us, you know that God's plan for us is a plan of sheer goodness, that he wants to bring us into a relationship with him. You know that already. One of the ways that God actually brings us into this relationship and keeps us, sustains us in this relationship is through the sacraments. Again, you might know that already. You might further know that so many of us miss out on the beauty and the power of the sacraments. But Ascension has an answer to this. Ascension has created two new programs. One is called Renewed, Your Journey Towards First Reconciliation. The second is Received, Your Journey Towards First Holy Communion. We know that our youth, they're our future. And yet at the same time, it's so hard oftentimes to reach them with this incredible news of God's love for them in reconciliation, God's love for them in the Eucharist. If you want to check out Ascension's new program, Renewed, Your Journey Towards First Reconciliation, and Received, Your Journey Towards First Communion, go to ascensionpress.com and sign up for a free preview. All right, and we are back. We are talking about the conditions of discipleship. We're talking about the role of suffering as the first and final condition. I'm going to get into that and final part. Uh, condition of what it means to follow after Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the master. So when we talk about this, this last part here, embracing suffering and discipleship makes you untouchable. So if what destroys our discipleship is the concerns and cares of this world, if it's the love of money, greed, foolishness, if it's overestimating time and denigrating eternity in comparison, then what we need to do is realize that suffering cures those things. Poverty cures our love of money, right? Persecution cures our fear of being socially rejected. Physical sufferings allow us to unite with the physical sufferings of Christ crucified. So this is what Jesus says in Luke 640. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully taught, will be like his teacher. So this is this notion of maturity in Christ. In Luke 14, verses 25 and following, it's actually called in the RSV Bible, the cost of discipleship. Now, great multitudes accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, it's almost like he's turning on them. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, now you got to think about this, family was everything in those societies. The great sociologist from Harvard, Carl Zimmerman, called these types of societies familistic, meaning the family actually ran societies. This is what patriarchy is, the rule of fathers. All the judges were the elders. Elders were the old men who have, were of high status families. So if you think about this, Jesus is saying, no one, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. This is one of those things that we wish Jesus didn't say. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, this is the condition of discipleship. So in verse 28 and following, he gives you a couple analogies. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, it's not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Think about that in terms of discipleship. This is the cost. 
He's telling you, I want you to understand what it costs you to follow me. You must hate your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even your own life. You must bear your cross and come after me. Or what king going to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and take counsel whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an embassy and asks terms of peace. So therefore, this is verse 33. So therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All that he has cannot be my disciple. He is saying, if you allow the conditions of this world to get in the way of the best, the good must fall to the best or else you cannot be my disciple. Embracing suffering in discipleship makes you untouchable. This is why Jesus gives us the Beatitudes. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it calls the Beatitudes the paradoxical promises that sustain hope in the midst of tribulations. Right? Tribulations, plural, many sufferings. So think about it. Walk through the Beatitudes now with this lens of suffering in discipleship as the condition. Blessed are they who are poor in spirit. If you're poor in spirit, which is not a great thing to be, right? <laughs> poor in spirit, you get the kingdom. Mourners are the ones who get comforted. Not the rejoicers, the mourners. The meek, not the powerful and domineering, are the ones who inherit the earth. The hungry and thirsty for righteousness, they're the ones who actually get satisfaction. The merciful, which also means those who have been sinned against, because that's what you're being merciful towards. The merciful are the ones who get mercy, and only the merciful. The unalloyed, the unmixed, the pure of heart are the only ones who get to see God. The peacemakers, meaning those surrounded by war and violence, they are the ones who are called children of God. And then he ends it by saying, blessed are those persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when men revile you and insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for thus did they persecute the prophets who were before you. So as we break down this whole and summarize this whole teaching today, suffering is the condition of discipleship. You cannot follow Jesus Christ without saying, Lord, every day I am going to deny myself. I am going to willingly choose to embrace whatever sufferings come my way in order to assist me in denying myself. I'm going to resign, not rebel against suffering, but rather I'm going to use it in cooperation with what you did for me 2,000 years ago, in cooperation with every Eucharist I have ever received, I am going to offer my body as a living sacrifice, and I'm going to do the difficult thing, the hard thing, the thing that gets me persecuted, knowing that the thing I am doing is good and righteous, knowing that the thing I'm doing will love others and bless others, will lead me into holiness, will sanctify my heart, knowing that by my suffering, I am enjoying your redemptive work in my life, and it's drawing me even closer to you. Lord God, I choose the cross. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So we return to John chapter 12. When the Greeks show up at the middle of Palm Sunday, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If you love your life in this world, you will lose it. Suffering is the great teacher that tutors us 
and how to break with our obsessions with honor, our obsessions with wealth accumulation, our love of money, our greed, our lusts, all of these things, suffering, suffering can break us because if anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am shall my servant be also. This is what leads us to eternal life because we're an imitation of the savior. So when you are dealing with suffering, you just say one thing, father, if it's your will, take it away, but not my will, but thine be done.